Whether this is her first Mother's Day or her 40th, she deserves more. Shop tons of stunning on-trend jewelry for every budget at Diamonds Direct. Diamond fashion jewelry, beautiful birthstones, everyday pearls, starting at just $200. Commemorate the real loves of her life with a gorgeous pendant featuring the birthstone of the one who made her mom. This Mother's Day, Diamonds Direct is everything you need to say thank you. Diamonds Direct, your love, our passion. Online at DiamondsDirect.com. When you have insurance, it's easy to forget about your out-of-pocket costs. That can be a lot of money. How do you know you're not overpaying? HealthLock can help. HealthLock is a technology company that securely connects with your insurance and reviews your claims for overbilling, wrong codes, and even fraud. To date, HealthLock has saved its members over $130 million. To save, visit HealthLock.com. Do it today before you see another healthcare provider. You know you've got a comeback in you. When you take the next step, you're going to make it count. For your career, for your family, for your life. You can earn a degree you're proud of with Purdue Global. Purdue Global is backed by Purdue University, one of the nation's most respected and innovative public universities. This is your chance. This is your opportunity. This is your comeback. Purdue Global, Purdue's online university for working adults. Start your comeback today at purdueglobal.edu. When you buy Kroger brand products, you feel like you're winning. That's because they offer proven quality at lower than low prices. In fact, we guarantee that you and your family will love how Kroger brand products taste. Or you get your money back. So next time you're shopping for the family, look for delicious Kroger brand products. Because they'll make you all feel like you're winning. Shop now, in-store, or online. Kroger. Fresh for everyone. Hi, I'm Molly Jongfast, and this is Fast Politics, where we discuss the top political headlines with some of today's best minds. And Marjorie Taylor Greene marks September 11th by suggesting red states secede from the U.S. and calling President Biden a traitor. We have such a great show for you today. The Texas Tribune's Patrick Svitek stops by to tell us all about Texas Attorney General Ken Paxton's impeachment hearing and the comic relief it has provided us. Then we will talk to Brennan Center for Justices, Michael Waldman, about all the fuckery in the Supreme Court. But first, we have the author of The Big Lie, Pod Save America's Dan Pfeiffer. Welcome back to Fast Politics, Dan. It's good to be here. We needed you ASAP. And I was literally <laughs> like, this is an emergency. This is a Dan emergency. And you were writing about it. And you were talking about it and you were thinking about it. And you've also been here before. So we are going through the worst news cycle ever, which is the national polls have Biden close to Trump news cycle. Biden must drop out. Discuss. Oh, I actually was. This has caused me to think back to a very dark period of time in my life, which was this exact period in 2011 when Barack Obama was in a tie with a generic Republican <laughs> in public polling, but losing to a generic Republican in our much more precise and better internal campaign polling. DC, we didn't freak out at the same level back then because 2016 had not yet happened, but people were 
freaking out. Doug Schoen and Pat Cadell, two one-time Democratic pollsters, wrote an op-ed in the Wall Street Journal calling on Barack Obama to drop out in favor of the much more electable Hillary Clinton, which is something that has... Amazing. Yeah. Amazing. The, the, main, the main argument in that was that A, Hillary Clinton was more electable, but B, that Republicans liked her better, so they'd be more willing to work with her if she was elected president than Obama. Wait, I just fainted. I'm sorry. Yeah, yeah. I mean, it, it's really an artifact of its time. But so... This is not an unusual situation. In fact, Chris Hayes pointed this out on his show last week that Reagan was tied with Mondale at this exact point in his presidency, and Clinton was tied with Dole at this exact point in their presidency. And so there is precedent for incumbent presidents being in this polling position, then winning, in fact, quite large landslide victories like Reagan, who ended up winning 49 states. I always want to find a way into situations like this to fit somewhere between, you don't want to be complacent about it, because there are some real warning signs here that all of us should take heed of, but also not panicking because we're 14 months out from the election and we've been here before. Tell me what the warning signs are. If you look at the polls right now, there are three or four things that I think are worth noting. One is Joe Biden's age is a big concern. It is a big concern for a lot of voters. Now, is that a solvable concern? You would like to think so. You know, he will have 14 months to prove that he is doing the job well now and can continue to do it for four years and how he performs on the campaign trail, particularly in high leverage moments like debates and convention speeches in the State of the Union, will go a long way there. So that's point one. Point two is that, and Nate Cohn wrote a really good piece about this in our times, is that Joe Biden is currently underperforming with voters of color, particularly black voters and Latino voters without a college education. There is not really a path to an electoral college victory without improving on where he is today. He doesn't have to get to where Barack Obama was in 2012 or 2008, but he's got to be doing better than he is. Next is young voters. Biden is struggling with young voters. And the biggest issue is not someone, is not that they're going to vote for Trump, that is not happening, but that they are either expressing significant openness to a third party candidate or are stating as of right now that they will not vote if the choice is Biden and Trump. And even among voters 25 to 39 in the New York Times poll, 16% of them would either not vote or, or vote for someone other than Joe Biden. And that is where a Green Party candidate yes. like Cornell West, who's, camp, who's my first cousin, Peter Dow, who I recently unfollowed yes. on Twitter, <laughs> is working for, and he will suck up that vote. Yeah. In fact, there's a Emerson college poll of Iowa that is out today you know, sometime this week came out this week that where Cornell West is getting five percent of the vote and for that for four of those five points are coming away coming from Biden now does that matter in Iowa no I don't think four points is going to be the difference in Iowa but you know one point is the difference in six states right so tell me what are the reasons to feel like we shouldn't drive the car off the road and end it all Oh, I mean, the re the reasons we should drive the so car off the road Not to be is, hyperbolic or anything. Right. Well, I mean, that's basically where a lot of people are right now is they're freaking out. They are looking for other candidates. They're lamenting why no one ran against Biden. Here's the thing. You have to look at these polls this far out, not as a prediction of the election, but a roadmap of how you get to where you want to be on election. And I believe that this will be an incredibly close election. You know, my tortured, tired metaphor is that we should prepare as if this election will be decided across four or five states by fewer people than attended a Taylor Swift concert. Like that's how it is, right? It was 60,000, 40,000 people this time, 60,000 people the time before. 
this is going to be incredibly close. You would probably rather be, I think in that scenario, Joe Biden, as we sit here today, is the slightest of favorites in that essentially coin flip with Trump. And that for a couple of reasons. One, incumbency matters. It is a huge advantage. And that's one of the reasons that Republicans really want Biden out is because they'd rather have someone who's not the incumbent. They would rather have 29 Democrats savaging each other for the next six months as opposed to Joe Biden spending, you know, taking these polls that we're all freaking out about. I imagine since the Biden campaign's on the air and the primary Biden super PAC is on the air, their polls say something similar to what we're, what we're seeing publicly. And they, so they now, they know we have 14 months to bring these, bring the Biden coalition back into the fold to rebuild the majority that won in 2020 and won in 2022. And that is a much preferable, you'd rather be doing that than either Biden being challenged by someone and running around Iowa and New Hampshire for the next few months or this free-for-all battle. I mean, does anyone want to revisit the 2020 Democratic primary? Republicans. Right, do. exactly. No, none of us do, right? And so that's one. Two, we don't really know. And I think this is why I, why we all need to bring some you know significant humility to using past precedent in how we talk about these things is... We just don't know how much things have changed over the last election or two because of sort of the rise of MAG extremism, sort of a hyper speeding up of polarization since 2016 and the pandemic. And so reason number two that you would feel good or slightly better about Biden is the economy as it looks today for as unhappy as people are about it. And there are some signs that people are starting to feel a little bit better is consistent with the sort of economy that incumbents get reelected. In. Now, obviously, the polling shows that Biden has to do a lot to convince people about what he's done to take advantage of that. But that is there, right? You'd much rather be running for re-election in an economy with historically low unemployment, wages that are creeping up and costs that are creeping down, and an economy that's growing than the opposite, right? And that seemed like a the opposite seemed like a real possibility six or nine months ago. And the map is slightly more favorable to Biden, right? The states that Biden needs to win the six battleground states, with the exception of 2016, voted for Democrats most of the time, are particularly Arizona and Georgia are trending demographically in a more blue direction, and they performed well in 2022. And that's a very positive sign because that means that there was not a lot of times you see states like, oh, you know, Obama won Indiana and North Carolina in 2008. And those states immediately snapped back Republican right afterwards. And that did not happen in Georgia, Arizona. They reelected Democrats in the midterms and what should have been a very tough election for Democrats. Biden just simply has more paths to 270. So he has structural advantages that you don't see in the polls. But the thing here is that this is, we all just have to recognize, and I think a lot of people are coming to terms with it now because these polls are out, is that Donald Trump can absolutely win this election. He absolutely can. He can do it with 91 in felony indictments. He can do it with several felony convictions if he's not serving from prison. That is the reality. And I think a lot of people really hoped that, one, he could not win after everything he did, and then that we would not live in a country where a man with 91 felony indictments related to trying to violently overturn an election and steal classified documents could be a coin flip for the presidency. And, that, and that's sort of where we are. That's probably where we always were. Just now, we've, now, now, we're, now we're aware of it. I want to take you back for a minute and just talk about how unprecedented it would be to remove an incumbent president from office 
and have a primary contest right now. I mean, there is no roadmap for this. Talk about that for a minute. Yeah. I mean, you mean remove as if for Biden, for someone to try to take on Biden and beat him? Right. It says, well, you know, he's overperformed in the midterms. In 2020, we've seen these special elections. He's overperformed. But because he's three years older than Trump, let's do a full primary contest. Jonathan Chait at New York Magazine wrote this piece over the weekend that was sort of like, why hasn't a mainstream Democrat challenged Biden? Not RFK Jr. or Marianne Williamson, but someone like Gavin Newsom, J.B. Pritzker, Gretchen Whitmer, Elizabeth Warren, Bernie Sanders, someone who has a credible case to actually win a Democratic primary. And the reason these people have not done it, because they all want to be president. Some of them have run for president before. Some of them will certainly run for president in the future, is that they would almost certainly lose. Almost certainly lose. Joe Biden for all of everyone's panic and worry and talks about how he's not, how, you know, the need for a primary and all of that is Joe Biden is, and this is, I think this would blow people away because we talk about Trump as if he is the cult leader who can lead Republicans off a cliff. Right now in the polls, Donald Trump's approval rating among Republicans is 77%. Joe Biden's approval rating among Republicans in the New York Times poll is also 77%. That is unbelievable. Yes. So, and you're seeing on the Republican side how hard it is to run a primary campaign against someone who nearly eight in 10 party members like. You wouldn't win that race. I don't think any of these people could beat Joe Biden. That's why they're not running. And they're not running because no one wants to lose. If you lose, your career is probably over. But also... People have a belief based on history that a primary challenge makes it more likely that the incumbent will lose in the general election. We believe that because, and I will stipulate that every presidential election analogy suffers from a small sample size problem, but the three incumbents have lost re-election in modern American history. Two of those three, Jimmy Carter and George H.W. Bush, did so after a very divisive ideological primary challenge. The only one who didn't was Donald Trump, who brought his own set of problems to the table. But so this belief is if you challenge, you probably can't beat Biden. And if you try, then you will probably make it more likely that Trump wins. And no one, no one who cares about the country, cares or even cares about their own political career would do such a thing. Yeah, I think that's a really important data point that those people who are having anxiety attacks need to remember is that this is not doable. The thing that I keep thinking about is this idea that like we've spent so much time obsessing about polls. I mean, you'll remember right before the midterms, we were told that Republicans were going, this was going to be the biggest Republican blowout ever. I just don't really trust polls. Is this my moral failing? Discuss. No, I don't think it's a moral feeling. I think if someone wants to say, I don't care about polls this far out for because polls have been wrong a lot of times recently and they change a lot. And I just gave you know earlier in this three examples of incumbent presidents who won re-election with relative ease who were at this exact same place in the polls. And that's probably a healthy way of going about life. My argument is we should look at polls seriously, not literally. The point here is not that Joe Biden is up by one or he's down by one. What the, what the polls tell us are this is going to be a close race. The Trump's legal problems are not going to be a deal breaker for a large part of his electorate. The Biden has some real work to do to rebuild his coalition to be able to win. He's underperforming with people that he got in 2020. He's got to fix that. 
and he absolutely can win. And there's no evidence in the polls that either that Biden can't win or that some other person would be necessarily be better than Biden. Because Biden's electability argument is quite strong because he beat Donald Trump last time. And then as you pointed out, in every political test since then, Democrats have done well with him at the top of the ticket. So that makes it even another reason why it'd be hard for someone else to come in and try to make the opposite case. The thing I will say about 2022, because a lot of people have responded to these polls saying, well, the polls predicted a red wave that didn't come. And so the polls must be missing something post Dobbs, that Dobbs awakened, which Dobbs definitely did awaken political movement in this country. But if you really go back and look at the polls in 2022, they actually were historically accurate. The problem was the analysis of the red wave. The problem was analytical, not mathematical. Everyone looked at the economy, the map, history, Joe Biden's approval ratings, and then believed that the red wave would happen anyway, even though the polls were quite close. If you want to ignore the polls, ignore them. If you want to look at them and pay attention to them, you should not find ways to dismiss them to fit our more desired narrative. Because I think the polls do paint an accurate picture of where this race is today. And they offer us a roadmap on how to get it where we want it to be 14 months from now. Let's talk about a Republican who is helping the Democrats right now. His name is Kevin McCarthy. Yes, 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 yes. And he is ready to impeach Joe Biden for dot, 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 dot. Oh, he's going to find out eventually. He's going to find out. But let's talk about this. The thing I am struck by is Nancy Pelosi was anxious about impeaching Trump because she remembered 1998. Obviously, Kevin McCarthy does not. Or remember 2018 or 2019. Tell me your hot take on what what is happening here. Kevin McCarthy is throwing everything against the wall that he possibly can to save his job. Kevin McCarthy is putting, I mean, not to mention sort of the integrity of our fundam- of our governing system at stake, but he's putting the his majority and the Republican Party's chances in the 2024 presidential election at risk in order to keep his own job. Because, you know, as the reason Nancy, Nancy Pelosi was exactly right to be nervous about embarking on impeachment. It was the morally correct thing to do. And I think Democrats would have suffered if they had walked away from that moral obligation. But politically, Donald Trump's numbers went up during impeachment. And I, my suspicion is that if Republicans continue to go down this path, Joe Biden's numbers will go up, in part because he's underperforming with people who like him and voted for him before. And so what more, what is, you know, I, it'd be hard to imagine a better way that to bring Democrats home to Biden than a Marjorie Taylor Greene ordered impeachment inquiry over nothing. Yeah, it does seem incredible. I would also want to point out Republicans have this House of Representatives by four seats. It seems like there's a Santos plea deal in the works. So that would mean a special in a biden district. McCarthy is also talking about something that makes a party wildly popular, a government shutdown. Discuss. Well, I mean, the original... Kevin McCarthy, I mean, he I really think he is one of the dumbest human beings to ever serve in a position of high political leadership in the United States. And that's saying a lot because it just all the ways in which he screwed this up are sort of unbelievable. His original the original reason he opened the impeachment can of worms was to keep the government open because he was going to go to the far right and say, look, I know you're you don't want to vote to keep the government open, but if but you have to do that because otherwise we have to shut down this impeachment inquiry you care so much about. Except Kevin McCarthy either didn't realize or didn't think the MAGA Republicans read the fine print because the impeachment inquiry does not have to shut down if they shut down the government. One person in, in the House of Representatives gets to decide what stays open and what doesn't. And that person is Kevin McCarthy. 
And so they can pressure him to do that. Just think about how this plays out, right? They embark on this impeachment inquiry. They hold high profile hearings. They go looking. They find nothing. And so they don't even hold the vote, which seems like a pretty good talking point for Biden when he's pushing back on Republican accusations of corruption and Hunter bullshit or whatever else. Or they hold the vote. Vote fails. Seems even worse for Republicans. Hold the vote passes on a party line vote over nothing. And that also helps Biden as it probably helped Trump in 2020. And there are 19, maybe 18 if George Santos has to leave his seat, 19 Republicans in Biden's seats. And those 19 Republicans have to decide between voting to impeach Joe Biden, and they're going to need to get people who vote Biden at the top of the ticket to vote for them to keep them in the House, or vote against impeachment or walk away from impeachment or oppose it and infuriate the Republican base whose turnout they also need. There is no way in which this turns out well for Kevin McCarthy. He has just galaxy braided himself into a corner. Yeah. All right. Well, I like it. Love to see it. Thank you so much, Dan, for joining us. Of course. Happy to do it as always. AI might be the most important new computer technology ever. It's storming every industry and literally billions of dollars are being invested. So buckle up. The problem is that AI needs a lot of speed and processing power. So how do you compete without costs spiraling out of control? It's time to upgrade to the next generation of the cloud. Oracle Cloud Infrastructure, or OCI. OCI is a single platform for your infrastructure, database, application development, and AI needs. OCI has four to eight times the bandwidth of other clouds, offers one consistent price instead of variable regional pricing, and of course, nobody does data better than Oracle. So now you can train your AI models at twice the speed and less than half the cost of other clouds. If you want to do more and spend less like Uber, 8x8, and Databricks Mosaic, take a free test drive of OCI at oracle.com slash strategic. That's oracle.com slash strategic. oracle.com slash strategic. When you have health insurance, it's easy to think, I'm covered, no worries, right? Well, not so fast. What about your out-of-pocket costs? That can be a lot of money for you and your family. And if you're like me, you can't help but wonder, was I overbilled? You're not alone. It's estimated that over 50% of medical bills contain errors. Unless you're a billing expert, how do you know your medical bills are accurate? That's why I want to tell you about HealthLock. What is HealthLock? It's a healthcare technology company that securely connects with your family's insurance. When your medical claims come in, HealthLock technology reviews the claims for errors like overbilling, wrong codes, and even fraud. HealthLock makes it easy to find and fix hidden errors, so you pay only what you owe. To date, HealthLock has saved its members over $130 million. Bottom line, insurance alone isn't enough. HealthLock finds medical bill errors before you pay. To save, visit HealthLock.com. Do it today before you see another healthcare provider. This is it. Your moment. This is your time to make your comeback with Purdue Global. When you come back with a Purdue Global degree, you create opportunity for yourself, your family, and your future. It's a degree you can be proud of. A degree that employers will trust and respect. Purdue Global offers working adults like you over 175 flexible degree programs to meet your specific career goals. These include associate, bachelor's, master's, and doctoral degrees and certificates. Purdue Global degree programs range from nursing to business to communication and more. Whatever your interest, we have the degree that will move you forward. You have the knowledge. You have the experience. Now it's time to get credit for the work you've done and earn the recognition you deserve with Purdue Global. 
Purdue's online university for working adults. You know you're worth it. We do too. So don't wait another second to get the degree that will take your career to the next level. Start your comeback today at purdueglobal.edu. Live Nation presents Concert Week. Now through May 14th, get $25 tickets to over 5,000 shows. That's up to 75% off a summer full of your favorite artists like 21 Savage, Alanis Morissette, Cage the Elephant, Celeste Barber, Dirk Bentley, Fade, Hootie and the Blowfish, Janet Jackson, Kids Bob Kids, Megan Trainor, Bissell Puma, Sarah McLaughlin. Get tickets to more than 5,000 summer shows for just $25. Until now through May 14th. Visit LiveNation.com slash Concert to learn more and plan your summer with Sean Paul, Sum 41, 30 Seconds from Mars, oh, and Two Door Cinema Club. Patrick Svitak is a political correspondent at the Texas Tribune. Welcome to Fast Politics, Patrick Svitak. Thank you so much for having me. So delighted to have you. You are covering what is perhaps not the trial of the century, but in my mind it is. So explain to our listeners a little bit about what this trial is, how it came into being, and whatever backstory you want to give us. Yeah, so this is the Texas Senate impeachment trial of Ken Paxton, who is currently the suspended attorney general of Texas. The state house voted to impeach him in May. And the way it works in Texas is once the house votes to impeach you, you're immediately suspended from office. And so this Senate trial will determine whether he is permanently removed from office. The governor has appointed an interim attorney general in the meantime. But the Senate trial is all about the whether Ken Paxson will be permanently removed from office. He faced 20 articles of impeachment in the House. Much of the case against him goes back to 2020, when several of his top deputies at the time reported him to the FBI and reported concerns they had about his relationship with a man named Nate Paul, who is at the time was an Austin real estate investor and in 2018 had been a kind of mid-level campaign donor to Ken Paxton. And the allegations basically boil down to Paxton and Paul got too close and there's alleged bribery in that relationship. There is an alleged extramarital affair between Paxton and a woman that is also tied up in that relationship with Nate Paul. And so much of the case we're hearing against Paxton does center on that relationship that was reported to the FBI in 2020 by those former top de- deputies in his office. Okay, I want to stop you and go back for a minute. Is Texas a state where Republicans, where one party impeaches the AG of that same party or now? Give us the sort of backstory here. This is unprecedented in that it's an impeachment of the attorney general. We've never had an impeachment of the attorney general before. This is just the third time that we're having an impeachment trial in Texas's 150 year plus history. So it is a a very historic moment. You know, it is the first trial I think we've had in more than a quarter of a century. There's very high stakes here. And I think that we have rarely, if not seldom in modern political history in Texas, have we seen the ruling party try to hold one of their own accountable like this. It is just that politically is just unheard of model political history in Texas. Yeah. Now let's talk about Ken Paxton's wife, Angela Paxton. She is a Texas state senator, but cannot vote in these proceedings. Just explain to me a little bit. This seems like this marriage might be in trouble. Well, the way that the two of them tell it or, or the way that the pe- people close to them tell it, um, you know, Ken Paxton uh, confessed to this affair, to his top aides, 
back in late 2020. Angela Paxton, his wife, was at his side at the time that he did that. And I believe that they you know, have since then tried to present a united front. And I know that um, you know, to a lot of people, that feels unnatural and awkward, but it does seem like something that they have worked out in their marriage. Of course, this, this trial is putting all these really painful details back on full display. And so I, I don't want to claim to have any insight into the, you know, the, the state of their marriage as of this moment. Right. Because this is a very painful experience for both of them. And I, I assume especially for her. But, but sort of more importantly, they've stayed married. Yes. They have stayed married and they did both appear at a political event in their home county on the Saturday before this trial started. And, you know, in, in my view, made a, a very deliberate show of uh, affection and made a point of appearing jointly at that event and embracing one another and, and showing that they were a united front going into this. And again, she cannot vote in this proceedings because, I guess, of her marital status or her involvement in this story. But she is a member of the body that will vote to remove her. That is correct. Yeah, she has been a state senator since, oh, I believe 2017, 2018 in this Senate. And there was when the Senate passed the trial rules back in June, they passed a recusal rule that didn't mention her by name, but basically said anybody who's a spouse of a party to the impeachment <laughs> who serves in this chamber cannot vote in it. But they can attend. And under my reading of the, the law and constitution, they have to attend. There is a I believe it's either in the state law or in the state constitution that during an impeachment proceeding in the Senate, every senator has to be present. And so. The rules committee in the Senate, the committee that was coming up with these rules was kind of in the, this unenviable position because there was such a glaring conflict of interest in their ranks. But at the same time, you know, I think the law requires that every every each 31 senator has to be there. I want to pull back for a minute and talk about Ken Paxton's role in Trump world. He was sort of the most Trumpy AG. Can you talk about some of the ways in which he expressed his undying fealty to Trump? Yeah, he actually was, you know, to take it even farther back, he was actually in the 2016 presidential election cycle. You know, he was, I believe, aligned with Ted Cruz until, you know, the summer of 2016. You know, and he was actually, you know, I think among state, statewide office holders, one of the people who held out longer back then. I mean, you know, Texas was still Ted Cruz country back then. Ted Cruz was probably a bigger star in Texas back then than he than he is today in terms of the, the Republican primary electorate. Paxton, though, ultimately got on board with Trump when he became president, worked to defend or be supportive of different Trump policies when they went to court. And of course, you know, it all leads up to in 2020, his most, you know, probably his most famous, you know, lawsuit on the national level, which was that lawsuit he filed trying to get the, the U.S. Supreme Court to reverse the uh, Trump's reelection loss in, in four battleground states. And so that lawsuit in 2020, I think, really cemented his status as, you know, one of the most pro-Trump attorneys general uh, out there. And, you know, it continued, the embrace of Trump continued into his re-election race in 2022, um, when he was facing a number of prominent challengers, including the land commissioner at the time, George P. Bush. George P. Bush was the first major challenger to declare against Paxton back in uh, 2021. And for a while there, Trump kind of teased the idea that he could actually endorsed George P. Bush. I mean, he made a statement saying that he was, you know, watching the race and likes Ken Paxton, but I'll have a decision soon. But ultimately, you know, Trump endorsed Ken Paxton for reelection in that 2022 primary. 
And even though it went to a runoff against Bush, Paxton defeated him soundly. And, you know, I do think Trump's endorsement early on in that race was was pretty critical to that primary not being that competitive at the end of the day for Paxton. But Ken Paxton did try. He was one of the attorneys generals who tried to overturn the 2020 election. Yeah. And like I said, I mean, that is I think a lot of people got introduced to him nationally with that lawsuit he filed in December 2020, I believe, obviously was, you know, unsuccessful. Personally, it endeared him to Trump even more. There was a lot of speculation at the time that he was so endeared to Trump as a result of that, that uh, maybe Trump was going to pardon him on his way out of office or something like that, because of just various legal problems Ken Paxson has had over his career. So that really, I think, endeared him to Trump. And, and I do think it was, you know, a political ploy to, you know, really cement himself in some ways as, you know, a, a new rising figure in kind of the pro-Trump, you know, MAGA movement. I know I shouldn't be so obsessed with Ken Paxton's lawyer, <laughs> but I'm a little bit obsessed with Tony Busby. First of all, I know that tanning is a choice <laughs> and he has made this choice to tan very intensely, but he also says kind of incredible, incredible stuff that like feels like it's right out of Saturday Night Live. Imagine if we impeached everyone in Austin who'd had an affair, we'd be impeaching people for the next hundred years. We also heard him say, imagine, what did he say? Something like if taking a campaign contribution were illegal, you'd all be in jail. Talk to me. I mean, he feels like a performer. Yeah, absolutely. So Tony Busby is a very prominent criminal defense attorney, also practices on various, but an attorney out of Houston, long time known as a big personality. He ran, and he's no stranger to politics, I should say, he ran for Houston mayor in 2019. He ultimately lost, but he self-funded his campaign and, and brought the incumbent mayor at the time, Sylvester Turner, to a runoff. And so it was a contentious and, you know, relatively competitive race. And even before that, people in politics probably knew him as Rick Perry's defense attorney when Rick Perry was indicted in 2014, 2015 for abuse of office, you know, for some some funding he vetoed. Busby successfully defended Perry in that case and Perry got the indictment dismissed. So this Busby is someone who has been known for years, both in the political and legal worlds in Texas, especially in the Houston area. And as you point out, I mean, he's known for his showmanship, being bombastic, potentially getting a rise out of people. And I, I think you're, you know, this this trial, I think, actually gives him kind of the, you know, the, the biggest sandbox for it, you know, yet, because you don't necessarily have the traditional guardrails around lawyers, you know, rhetor- rhetorical flourishes that you may have in a an actual formal courtroom setting. I mean, Busby, I think, has definitely been able to take advantage of some of the looser parameters of this trial to really let his, you know, to really just be himself, I think, and be a big personality and be even be provocative. Yeah. I mean, it really does seem like he's kind of the star of this trial. For the average person tuning in, I do think he he may stand out as the star. So yeah, for, for those of us who've been watching politics for a while in Texas, you know, we know he's this is this is to be expected with him. And I should note, as far as his political life is concerned, he's also actively running for a seat on the Houston City Council in the November oh, 2023 Christ. election. 
while he is dealing with this case in the Senate. So he's got a lot on his plate. (laughs) First, I want you to talk us through what, because not all of us are completely versed in the laws of the Texas state government. What happens now in this trial? So this trial is going to probably wrap up uh, end of this week, Thursday or Friday, because there are time limits on each side. So there's a finite amount of time each side gets to make their case. And, you know, at that point, the case will go to the jury, which are the 30 senators who get a vote, excluding Angela Paxson, because she doesn't get a vote and she also doesn't get to participate in jury deliberations. So at that point, those 30 senators, they're going to start deliberating this behind closed doors. You know, that was one of the stipulations in the trial rules that all, all jury deliberations will be private. So they're not going to be debating this out in the open for us to see their thought process. So they're going to go behind closed doors. The lieutenant governor has said that he's going to keep the senators in Austin until they come up with a verdict. They're not going to, you know, break for the weekend that I assume, you know, that they'll break at the end of the day, go home and go to sleep. But this is, you know, it's going to be through the weekend until they come up with a verdict. And at that point, they'll come back to the courtroom and it'll, you know, I do think it'll resemble what you typically see in a high profile, you know, criminal trial where, you know, there will be a somber reading off of the individual charges. In this case, the individual articles of impeachment, there'll be an announcement of the vote to convict Paxton on any article of impeachment requires two thirds of the total body so that Angela Paxton does count towards the denominator of that. So that is two thirds of 31. So that means they need 21 votes to convict him on an article. There are 12 Democrats in the state Senate. And then there are, as we just talked about, there are 18 who can vote. (laughs) So that means if all 12 Democrats vote, you know, want to convict him, half the remaining Republicans have to side with the Democrats to get to, uh, I believe, 21. Does that seem like it's possible? I do think it's possible. So we had a a series of pretrial motions to dismiss before this trial all got started. And those only required a majority vote. And Paxton lost his efforts, you know, on all of those. And we only saw, depending on how you look at it, a floor or a ceiling, but six Republican senators who consistently voted for the pretrial motions to dismiss. And so to me, that suggested a lot of softness. You know, that's Again, six out of 18 who were firmly on Paxton's side in the pretrial motions to dismiss. So at a minimum, that to me suggests, you know, obviously a lot of people wanted to, you know, a majority of the Republican caucus wanted to proceed to trial and, and at least see the evidence and hear the testimony. So that, that suggested to me there's a lot, there was a good amount of softness within the Republican caucus, um, that there are a number of votes that are up for grabs here. So I do think it's possible and it, it should be noted that to be re- permanently removed from office, he just has to be convicted on one of those articles. They're going to vote on, you know, article by article. But is, if he gets a two thirds vote, if one of those articles gets a two thirds vote, he is convicted and he's permanently removed from office. And then there would be an additional vote on whether to disqualify him from state office ever again. So he could not run for his you know, old job in the next election. Let me just ask you now, what do you think the larger implications are for this in Texas? Like, could this help a Senate candidate or does this help Republicans? I mean, where I feel like Texas is one of those places where if you don't live there, you don't know what the fuck is going on. <laughs> so like I said at the beginning, I think this continues to be striking for just how big of an act of self-policing this is by Texas Republicans. I think that if he is convicted, permanently removed from office and even disqualified from running for state office again, that will send the message that in this one party dominated state that has at times 
grown too big and dominant, you know, for its own good, that there is still some real accountability to be had when one of their leading figures has long running and well-documented legal problems. And so I think it'll be somewhat of a proud moment for the Texas Republican Party in that regard. But as far as politics is concerned, it's hard for me to see Paxton going away politically. Of course, if he is acquitted, he is more politically empowered than ever. People are talking about him, you know, running for governor. You know, he will be a huge star on the the pro-Trump right. But even if he's convicted and permanently removed from office, he could still have a political future. And I believe that vote on disqualification only uh, applies to state office. So he could run for federal office and his supporters have already made you know noise about him potentially challenging U.S. Senator John Cornyn in 2026. I guess to put it, you know, the bottom line is big picture. It would be an incredible act of holding one of their own of Texas Republicans holding one of their own accountable when it comes. But when it comes to politics, I don't see this meaning either way that he goes away anytime soon. OK, good. I mean, not good. <laughs> and the national implications, it's just too soon to say. Yeah, I mean, I think, you know, uh, the national implications are I think you look for, you look at it through the, the lens of, of Trump. I mean, you know, Paxton has been such a, a staunch ally of Trump. And so. Right. So it'll help him in a Republican primary. Right. I would imagine that next year, regardless of whether he's convicted or not, Paxton is going to be a loyal surrogate for Trump no matter what. So someone you would you would see on the campaign trail. Incredible stuff. Thank you, Patrick. Thank you so much for having me. Michael Waldman is president and CEO of the Brennan Center for Justice at the NYU School of Law. Welcome to Fast Politics, Michael. Great to be with you. Let's start by talking about exactly where we are right now with the Supreme Court, because I feel like we sort of are seeing scandal after scandal unfold in a kind of incredible way. And I was hoping you could explain to us a little bit about how we got to where we are with the Supreme Court. Yeah, you know, it's a big moment in the history of the court. And for those of us who care about the Constitution and things like that, it's a big moment on all of that. We're now two years into this super majority of six very conservative justices dominating the court, uh, the court that has nine members. And this is unusual. This was the product of very intense politicking and organizing by the Federalist Society and other very well-funded groups to, to produce this supermajority. And they're now moving the court and the way it interprets the Constitution and, and therefore the country in a very abrupt direction to the right. And it's coming at a time when people are increasingly angry about the decisions they're making, but also seeing them more and more as a political body and public trust in the court by all the polls has collapsed to the lowest level ever recorded. It's a real crisis of legitimacy brought on the court by its own actions. Can you sort of take us back historically? Because this is not the first time that we've seen a very politicized court out of step with the rest of the country. Can you talk about that? You're absolutely right. I mean, the Supreme Court has the power it has because we give it that power. As a lot of people say, it doesn't have an army. It can't really enforce its own decisions. It only is able to act as it does because we give it that trust. And the part of the Constitution dealing with the federal courts and the Supreme Court is only one-tenth the length of the part dealing with Congress and the president, the elected branches. The idea that it's become this sort of super legislature over these other branches has taken a long time to happen. Now, the truth of the matter is, 
when you look at the history of the country, most of the time, the Supreme Court basically reflects the consensus in the country at the time, or at least the, the elite consensus, the elite political consensus. It, it sort of hugs the middle. And that's partly how it has kept its credibility with people. But there were a few times, not many, but a few times when it was extreme or unduly activist or partisan. And then there was a really fierce pushback, a really fierce, often very political response. It happened after the Dred Scott decision in 1857, which said that Congress could not bar slavery from the territories and even worse, that black people could not be citizens. The response was so outraged that it elected Abraham Lincoln to the presidency, then ultimately helped bring on the Civil War. You saw something similar when the court at the beginning of the 20th century, the, the justices of that time, the, the Alitos of that court, they thought their job at a time of, you know, industrialization and rising inequality, they thought their job was to stop government from being able to do anything to protect right. people. It was a huge fight, not just we all kind of know about FDR in the end when they were about to strike down Social Security and other parts of the New Deal. But for years before that, it was a big controversy uh, when Teddy Roosevelt ran as a third party candidate in the 1912 election. And it's this kind of storied election where he was challenging his handpicked successor, Taft, and Woodrow Wilson was the Democrat and there was a socialist. Teddy Roosevelt's big issue was an attack on the Supreme Court and its extreme and right wing and reactionary rulings. And then the, the third time where there was a backlash, where the court was a, out of step with the country eventually, was the Warren Court. And that's you know, I, I like the decisions of the Warren Court. It began with Brown versus Board of Education, but it did go very far, very fast at a time of great social upheaval in the country. And it did produce its eventually a backlash. And that backlash is what we're living in to this day. I think we're seeing something similar now where what this court is doing is going to produce a massive political backlash that can help reshape the country in the elections. So let's talk about what it means to have sort of the state we're in right now, where the court has a lot of controversy and also a sort of secret organization that's not that secret anymore, but that has really unlimited financing. Will you talk to me about the Federalist Society and a little bit about how that sort of came out of nowhere and that there's not much of a precedent for it? I can't really think of any precedent for something like this in our country's history. You have basically a faction of a faction has captured this branch of government. And it's the branch of government with the least accountability because they have lifetime terms. They're not elected. There's not necessarily all that much you can do about it, although there are things you can do about it. The Federalist Society started as a student club back in the 80s when there were conservative law students who thought that they were kind of marooned in the liberal and progressive world of law schools. But it's grown to become this very well-oiled, very effective political machine, grooming judges, pushing them toward the bench, urging them to act in a very specific and I would argue reactionary way. And, you know, I said it's a well-oiled machine. And yeah, I always used to look at it and say, oh, you know, it's really interesting how effective they are, but they don't seem to have that much money. Well, <laughs> that was wrong. Uh, it, right. turns, it turns out <laughs> that a couple right. of years ago, somebody gave Leonard Leo, who's the force behind the Federalist Society, $1.6 billion, with a B, dollars, secretly, of course, to use for this project. And 
it's not only funds the Federalist Society, it funds other groups, you know, many of which share an office address, running tens of millions of dollars of ads to get these justices and judges throughout the system on the bench, running ads praising Congress for refusing to consider the nomination of Merrick Garland, creating organizations to file the suits to produce these right-wing rulings. So I just want to stop you for a second. File the suits to produce the right-wing rulings. Why don't you take a case on last year's docket? I'm thinking of 303 Creative, because that's a case where the plaintiff she had never made a wedding website, right? That case, 303 Creative, she wanted to discriminate against gay people if she ever made a wedding website, which she never had. That's a kind of plaintiff, right? That's the kind of plaintiff we're talking about here. Yeah, and I don't know about, you know, Leonard Leo's involvement in that one in particular, say. Right, but these are plaintiffs crafted for a kind of outcome. You're seeing a bunch of cases where Justices are supposed to be a court, right? They're supposed to be hearing what they call a case in controversy, meaning that like it's an actual dispute between people with an actual problem. Increasingly and disturbingly, you're seeing these effectively made up institutions or made up fact patterns brought before the court. So 303 Creative, as you said, they said, oh, this, this person wants to not have to do websites for her wedding website business for same-sex couples. And this is terrible that she's being she's being threatened. Well, she didn't even claim that she had ever been prosecuted or stopped from doing it. But her her papers did say that there was somebody who'd asked her to do it after the case was basically being heard. I think it was the day before. It turned out that the person whose name was in the papers said, what, me? I'm married. Actually, I'm straight. <laughs> so, you know, it, it seemed like it was kind of made up. And this isn't the first time. And even cases like the affirmative action case where you have one guy named Ed Blum who created a group of allegedly representing Asian students, having struck out previously in other cases with a woman and before that with a white man. Now it's Asian students. And it's, again, this kind of synthetic and manufactured legal crusade, very well-funded, leading to these, you know, abrupt outcomes. And again, when you kind of look at the first two years of this supermajority, look at the big cases they, they ruled on, abortion, guns, affirmative action, and in the regulatory cases, the interests of the fossil fuel industry. That doesn't sound like a court. That sounds like an RNC caucus. <laughs> right. So, you know, it's it's just a very different thing than what we've seen before. Yeah. No, it's really true. I think that's a really good point. And I also think one of the things we're talking about when I've talked to you before was this idea that, I mean, if you look at the last three cases from the last season, it was Dobbs. It was the EPA versus West Virginia, which, again, is is the EPA, right? Limiting the scope of the EPA. And then the Bruin case, which is states' rights when it comes to things that Republicans like, like guns. So these are really radical remaking of the country. Right. In three days, in three days in June, decades of conservative social policy enacted by these public officials. That's what they are. They're not wizards, they, even though they wear robes, they're not clergy, you know, even though they pretend to be just reading the runes of the past, they're public officials. And it's hard to find any branch of the federal government that has jammed as much ideologically charged policy into being in such a short time in, in memory. 
And the other thing that, that really bothers me, that concerns me, is not only the, the, the outcomes of these cases, but the way they say they're doing it, because that really rings loudly in other courts. They say they are following originalism. That's this idea, you know, that. Yes, I was about to ask you about originalism. Yeah, no, I mean, they say they're following originalism. That's this idea that the only legitimate way to read the Constitution is to ask what it meant to the people who ratified it at the time. And that means, in practical terms, people in 1787 or 1791 most of the time. So literally, even if you get the history... People who owned slaves and whose wives were not allowed to vote. And who used leeches for medical care. Right, you know, and, right. And it literally means that the property-owning white men of the 1700s, their social views must govern us now. And that is a crazy way to run a modern country. And it, by the way, it's not how any Supreme Court has ever done this before. It's not how other countries do it. I mean, think about it. In Great Britain, someone doesn't propose some some gun regulation, say, or something like that. They don't say, oh, that's really interesting. This might be a good idea. But the big question is, what did King George III think about it? Because that's really what matters today. It's nutty. And you might say, oh, you know, it's kind of, isn't this how it's always been? No, really, until 2022. There have only been four really major cases in the country's history that just were relying on this originalism. The first one was Dred Scott. It discredited it so much that they didn't really try it again for, you know, over a century. A case in 2008 called Heller, which was the first time the Supreme Court ever said... Yeah, the gun rights. Yeah, that right. the Second Amendment reflects an individual right to gun ownership for self-protection. That was the first time. And Dobbs. And then this Bruin case on the Second Amendment, which was by far the most extreme such case that we've ever had. I wrote a book about the Heller case. Heller said there was an individual right. I think they got the history wrong. But anyway, Heller said explicitly, look, but you can still have strong gun rules and actually listed a bunch of them. Heller was written by Antonin Scalia. And Scalia was asked, what's the difference between you and Clarence Thomas? And he said, well, I am an originalist, but I am not a nut. <laughs> <laughs> Thomas wrote the Bruin decision. It says that you, in effect, that you cannot take into consideration current public safety concerns when looking at whether a gun law is constitutional. Only, quote, history and tradition. Literally, like, did they have a rule like this in the 1700s, which is causing dozens of gun laws to be challenged or knocked down all over the country. And the Supreme Court actually took a case that they're going to hear in November uh, where they might try to pull back on this just because the implications are so extreme. Right. Oh, interesting. Why do you think that? Well, so the way this is played out, Supreme Court is one court, but there's dozens and dozens of other federal courts and they listen to what the Supreme Court says and they, in most cases, don't get up to the top court. And the way judges have been interpreting how to look at gun laws after this really extreme decision. Give an example, in New York State, when New York, which had its gun law struck down, had to pass a new, a new law, and a federal judge in upstate New York said, well, history and tradition, for it to be history and tradition, two examples from the colonial era, that's a mere trend. <laughs> for it to be a tradition, you need three. <laughs> and I can, find, I can find no tradition of laws banning guns at sleepaway summer camps. 
So therefore, that's unconstitutional, let alone, you know, subways, because they hadn't invented that for 100 years. It sounds like a parody, but that's literally... We've opened the door to peak crazy here. Peak crazy. And then the one that really bothered people the most, I think, was in Texas. No surprise, maybe. Where the Court of Appeals said, the very conservative Fifth Circuit Court of Appeals said, well, the law saying that you can take a gun away from somebody who has a, an adjudicated record of domestic violence, that's unconstitutional. Right, because you didn't have domestic violence in the 1700s. That was just marriage. Or it was a good thing. You didn't have prohibitions on domestic violence, and therefore there's no history and tradition. And people are, you know, understandably horrified by that. And the Supreme Court took that case. It's called Rahimi. Who knows? But they could have just let it stand. I have a feeling they took the case to kind of say this is too far. It's still going to be pretty extreme, the, the overall outcome. So my man, and he's actually not my man, Sam Alito, you know him. He's a big listener to the podcast, I'm sure. Oh, yeah, he's a, he's a big fan. Unless it's a clipped on Fox News, I don't think Justice Alito is going to see it. But Justice Alito in the news, because he says Congress has no authority to regulate the Supreme Court, Congress actually really could, theoretically, if they wanted to regulate the Supreme Court. Oh, unambiguously. I mean... For someone who claims to be a textualist, he needs, you know, better reading. Some text. I mean, yeah. yeah. Uh, and, and Elena Kagan, and the, it, part of this highly controversial moment is they're now all going out and giving speeches, criticizing each other. She went out and said, that's absurd. <laughs> of course, Congress has the ability to regulate. Congress has regulated the court as it has the right to do on many different things, whether ethics rules, the size of the court, its jurisdiction, all of this is given that power to the Congress by the Constitution. And more broadly, those of us who care about the court and the country and the Constitution, we should be urging Congress to act. I mean, the easiest, the lowest hanging fruit is kind of what Alito was responding to. The Supreme Court, as you know, is the only court in the country without a binding ethics code, the only one. And nobody is so wise that they should be the judge in their own case. It's kind of a very basic principle, but that's the situation here. And we keep seeing these scandals over and over again with the billionaires whisking these justices off to their luxury lairs and then them not revealing it or not recusing from the cases. Congress emphatically can pass an ethics code for these judges as they have for other judges. And uh, there's bipartisan legislation to do it. And, you know, I have a feeling that there's division within the Supreme Court on this. Kavanaugh recently said, oh, we're going to do something, but we'll see. I also think there's even more basic structural changes that can be made. I'm strongly in the group I lead, the Brennan Center for Justice. We're strongly for an 18-year term limit for justices. Nobody should have too much public power for too long. George Washington, you know, when he limited his own term to two terms, he kind of reflected that insight. And the thing about term limits that's interesting is I think a lot of people don't realize this. It's really popular. It's really popular among conservatives and liberals and Democrats and Republicans. I was a member of the uh, commission on the Supreme Court that President Biden appointed in 2021. And, you know, these commissions, they don't do that much often. And we were actually instructed at the beginning not to reach conclusions. And we didn't, <laughs> you know, we've a government agency that works as intended. But it was really pretty interesting. We heard from dozens of public witnesses from left and right, and they had all different views on all different stuff. Some were for court expansion, others were against it. Some were for an ethics code, others were against it. Over and over they said, oh, but I'm for term limits, of course. 
I think there's a national consensus on this that we don't even realize is there. Now, that doesn't mean it happens without controversy. People will get polarized. It certainly could be done by a constitutional amendment. I think it could be done by a statute as well. So, you know, I think it's an idea whose time has come. And that's the kind of thing that can help bring some accountability structurally to the court. Yeah, absolutely. Thank you so much for joining us. We've gone over because it was so fascinating. But thank you. My pleasure. And now your moment of fuckery. Jesse Cannon. Molly Jung fast. Let me tell you, Republicans are in disarray. Things are just just going so good for Speaker of the House, Kevin McCarthy. Kevin McCarthy has a Donald Trump problem. Unfortunately, his he only has one solution, which is a Donald Trump solution. He has a situation where Donald Trump really wants him to impeach Joe Biden, despite the fact that there's nothing really to impeach Joe Biden on. And despite the fact that impeaching Joe Biden will fundamentally hurt moderates in the party and perhaps lose Republicans the House. And he had all this time to write a statement and still like everything that came out when he made it was like total bullshit. Like they can't even be bothered to put the effort in here. Kevin McCarthy made six claims in support of his call for an impeachment inquiry. Most predate 2021. Several don't involve Joe Biden at all. And one was flatly untrue. For being a complete sociopath and sycophant, Kevin McCarthy's quest to impeach, his Quixotean quest to impeach one Joe Biden is our moment of fuckery. That's it for this episode of Fast Politics. Tune in every Monday, Wednesday, and Friday to hear the best minds in politics make sense of all this chaos. If you enjoyed what you've heard, please send it to a friend and keep the conversation going. And again, thanks for listening. Live Nation presents Concert Week. Now through May 14th, get $25 tickets to over 5,000 shows. That's up to 75% off a summer full of your favorite artists like 21 Savage, Alanis Morissette, Cage the Elephant, Celeste Barber, Dirk Bentley, Fade, Hootie and the Blowfish, Janet Jackson, Kids Bop Kids, Megan Trainor, Bissell Puma, Sarah McLaughlin. Get tickets to more than 5,000 summer shows for just $25. Until now through May 14th. Visit LiveNation.com slash Concert to learn more and plan your summer with Sean Paul, Sum 41, 30 Seconds from Mars, oh, and two-door cinema club. Right here, right now. Find your beautiful new floor at Right Rug Flooring. Choose from thousands of in-stock styles ready for next day installation and all backed by the right price guarantee. Visit RightRug.com. That's R-I-T-E-R-U-G.com today to schedule a free in-home estimate or to find a location near you. 24-month financing is available with approved credit. For 90 years, we've been right here, right now. Right Rug Flooring. Whether you're a savvy spender maximizing your savings with cashback rewards, a thrifty rate watcher seeking the lowest interest, or a travel enthusiast looking for extraordinary perks, Kemba Financial Credit Union has a visa to complement your lifestyle and unique needs. Apply today at Kemba.org to unlock a limited-time 2% cashback on purchases. And pay 0% interest on balance transfers for an entire year with a new visa from Kemba. You deserve a card that works for you. Restrictions apply. Offer ends June 30th, 2024. When you have insurance, it's easy to forget about your out-of-pocket costs. 
that can be a lot of money. How do you know you're not overpaying? HealthLock can help. HealthLock is a technology company that securely connects with your insurance and reviews your claims for overbilling, wrong codes, and even fraud. To date, HealthLock has saved its members over $130 million. To save, visit HealthLock.com. Do it today before you see another healthcare provider.